Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for joining us this morning. And what a morning have we got. Two lovely, lovely ladies. First up, we've got Roe Edge, Save Women's Sport, talking to us about a remarkable thing that happened in our parliament and starts on June the 15th this week. From this week on, you can decide to be a girl or a boy or something else and have your birth certificate changed to that effect. So I could get my birth certificate changed just by filling in an online form to being born a girl 66 years ago. And if you looked at my birth certificate, you would assume that I had been a girl all this time. And there's no, you wouldn't know that I had changed it after the fact. 120 MPs voted for it. Every MP in our parliament voted for self-ID. I could become a woman tomorrow or something else, I guess. We're talking to Roe Edge about this and where the public are. Wonderful, wonderful woman. Very brave woman. And also, all the way in for Maryland, a very, very wonderful lady, Sally Falloon Morale, the chief executive principal of the Western A. Price Foundation, a wonderful foundation, uh, extolling the virtues of following Dr. Western A. Price and his wife's studies on human nutrition and physical degeneration, the only diet book that to me is science because they actually compared control groups, one lot of people against another lot of people. And people that had been eating a diet not for six weeks, but their entire lives and their parents and their grandparents and seeing the difference. And oh my goodness, read that book. Your life will never be the same. And we'll have Sally Falloon Morale on to tell us all about it soon on the show. Oh, I'm so excited. And send us a text, 2057, email us inbox at realitycheck.radio. Thank you for listening. It's a great morning ahead. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together, and so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission.
Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And up next, a woman that needs all of our support, all of our love, all of our prayers, because her fight is a fight of the ages. And She's extremely brave, extremely brave. And I'm talking, of course, about the very lovely Ro Edge from Save Women's Sport. Ro, good morning. Good morning. God, what an introduction. I don't know if it's the fight. Of, I can't believe we're actually having this fight again. Nor it seems I. ridiculous, doesn't it? Like, no, can yeah, I? Very, very surreal. I mean, we women thought that we had fought for the rights to, you know, fair and safe competition, gen- like, you know, a generation ago. And here we are all over again. So, and we have seen what happens to people who take a public stand. I mean, yeah, the most. I do. I do think that that is changing, though, Rodney. Like, especially overseas, not so much in New Zealand. Obviously, we're still turfs and even Nazis now because that means that you know people can do whatever they like to us. But overseas, we are seeing a change of direction, especially in the UK. And mm-hmm. I, we always eventually follow. We are a little bit. Sp- Slow on it. So, you know, it might take us five years, but I do think the direction of travel is changing again and common sense is prevailing. It just might take a little bit of time for it to happen in New Zealand. Mm. Well, I salute you and I salute your bravery because I watched JK Rowling, who was a lady of the left, very successful, and to watch her be pilloried day after day after day, in the foulest possible way, simply for doing what you do, mm. standing up for women, and that women are different to men, that women need their spaces and they need their sport. Nothing anti-trans in any of it, right? Yeah. Not saying you can't dress up as a woman, but just saying men cannot play in women's sport or enter a woman's private space. And for that to be, I mean, it should be a no-brainer. Mm. Yeah. That, that's, that's part of the struggle I have. And I read a great book called uh, Cynical Theory. Oh, I'm reading that now, actually, on your recommendation. My God, it's an eye-opener, isn't it? It wow. is an eye-opener. And, of course, part of the political strategy of this is to keep us totally confused and off balance. And that's how we all feel and, until you give up because you're so confused by what words you're allowed to use, what it is to be polite, what is it you're allowed to say. And the sort of nuttier and nuttier it gets um, the more confused people like me become and the more easily we are manipulated because we just don't know what to think. 
Yeah, and they've utilised our kids to do that too. Yes. So they've indoctrinated our kids at universities and now it's going down to primary school and even Mm -hmm. kindergarten. And so the kids tell you when you say something, you can't say that. Well, I've got one answer to that. I damn well can and I damn well will. So, (laughs) you know, they just, they they are the ones that are censoring their parents and parents really need to start fighting back against it. Now, I was vaguely aware. I'm, I I apologize because I follow you and I follow the various groups and I try and keep up. But this thing, I remember thinking about it. Oh, really? And then it passed me by, and now it's happened. And the 15th of June is a big date because that's when it becomes law to do what? To be able to change the sex on your birth certificate with no medical or any reason. You can just literally change the sex on your birth certificate and as many times as you like just by making a statutory declaration. That, to me, is the craziest thing I have ever heard. Well, it actually makes what was an identification document a lie. It just makes it a complete and utter lie, but it also makes it worthless. You know, I mean, it's so ridiculous that you can have two parents who identify as not their biological sex put down as, like, they might be two females and what would normally be called a lesbian relationship because they identify as trans men, they can have two fathers on the birth certificate of a child when <laughs> they're mothers. So everyone women. listening, this is this legislation that passed coming into effect on the 15th of June. And what it means is that I can get a statutory declaration. What does a statutory declaration mean? I think it's just an online form signing that you confirm that you <laughs> no longer identify, well, you, that you identify as whatever sex. So and basically, my birth certificate, I was born yeah. on the 16th of December, 1956. And according to the parliament that passed this, at the time I was born, they gendered me. And what is the word they use? Assigned. They misgendered you. Oh, yeah. yeah. They, they assigned yeah. me to be a male, you know, like not hard to figure that out. And, but my birth certificate will be changed to read that I was born a female. And here's to me, that is bonkers. The next bit is next level bonkers. I truly can't believe this, right? And I'm I'm saying this tentatively because I read the legislation, I read the debate, I read your submissions. We're going to go through all of that. And I thought I must be missing something because surely this hasn't happened. Not only, so where I get it wrong, tell me. Not only can I change my birth certificate from 1956 to say that I'm a female there will be no record that I've changed it. Correct. Now that to me is scary. Well, it it just makes it worthless. It's no longer a form of identification because it's it's portraying a falsity. How do you trust it anymore? Uh, Yeah, absolutely mad. Well, (laughs) so I went all the way through school and all the way through life get married, had kids, 
get married again, have kids. <laughs> and as a man, but I could change my birth certificate, which is a historical document from 1956, that would anyone looking at it would say, oh, Rodina has been a girl Rodina. <laughs> since 1956, right? Uh, yeah. Now, the implication of this is that we now know that any gym or sports club or tennis club or anything that tries to exclude males from women's sport and women's changing areas are not going to succeed because they can be taken to the human rights tribunal and they will lose. Well, we would hope so, but our Human Rights Commission is so damn woke that they've... No, 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 what I'm saying is you wouldn't win it. The, no. The, the, the mayor no. will get in. Yeah, well, they will, although the legislation, the one thing that we managed to do through all of our submissions, so there was like, just to go back through the process, because the process Please. itself was absolutely flawed. So what happened is, in, um, like it was in the two, 2017 Labour Party manifesto that they wanted to do this, but it was kind of hidden quite well. So unless you were part of Rainbow Labour, you really had no idea it was there. But as soon as they got into government, they were updating the Birth, Deaths and Marriages Act, and it was kind of just administrative changes that really needed to happen. It went through the first reading, went to select committee. It didn't have sex self-ID in it. It went out for public consultation. Obviously, there wasn't a lot of interest because there was nothing contentious in the bill. It was just about bringing it up to date because I think the last time it was updated was like maybe in the 50s. I don't know, but it needed to happen, right? And then after it went through select committee, a Labour and Green MPs basically popped in this change for sex self-ID without telling anybody. They just kind of popped it in there. But then it went back into, I think, the second reading where no one was aware it was there. And I might get might get this process slightly wrong because it was so goddamn confusing. Tracy Martin caught wind of what was going on, got Crown Law advice because she was concerned and decided to put the bill on hold. And that's where it stayed. But what Labor did in the meantime is that they implemented sex self-ID by stealth through every government department they possibly could. So they created all of the changes as if sex self-ID had gone through so that when the policy came back and was put through Parliament again, everyone would go, well, look, it's already happening. Let's just push it through because, you know, essentially we're already doing it. So, yeah, like multiple agencies introduced new policies and approaches to bring in gender ideology, you know, the pronoun use came in, all of that. And it was all made with very little policy analysis, no risk mitigation, no impact assessment, no pilot processes, no evaluation on like what the implications might be, and only with feedback from people of the that gender identity community. So they just, they introduced it by stealth completely. And then when it did, so it went to the second reading and then when when Labor decided to pass it again, I think rather than putting the whole, because there was an uproar from groups like us and Speak Up for Women and others about the sex self-ID changes, they were pressured into opening up consultation again. So they just did it on that specific part of the bill. They opened it up with hardly any notice for 20 days during a level four COVID lockdown with- no. um, one-sided media who would not 
portray what any of the concerns were, just called groups like ours, anti-trans, transphobic, bigots, etc. And then Labor pushed. And this and the select committee process with that consultation was just appalling. Like the the attitude of the MPs, like Kitty Kitty and um, Julianne Genter, et cetera, on there was absolutely appalling. It was the worst submissions process I have ever been through. And it, like it would put a lot of people off ever wanting to do it again. It was it so was presumably different. you did it by Zoom. Yeah, yeah, all done by Zoom. Yeah, but it was an appalling process. But there was over 7,000 submissions. Surprisingly, we managed to get over 7,000 submissions. 70% of them plus, I think it was 73%, were opposed but they still pushed it through and didn't make any changes. Apart from one, actually, I lie. We got one in there, and that was to say, because they were basically making birth certificates a lie now, they they mean they don't mean what they say anymore. We got the change that they that they birth certificates didn't have to be the only form of evidence a service provider or sport could use to determine whether you could discriminate ah, on the basis of sex. Good. So we managed to get that through. But the problem is that. There's a lot of facilities, service facilities and sports that aren't aware of that at all. But it is on the DIA's website. There's a link there and they they make it very clear that the Human Rights Act still applies. And where sports and services need to discriminate on the basis of sex, they can still do that. But there's a hell of a lot of pressure for them not to. So when you say you're on your Zoom call and the MPs were a little rude, and you singled out Dr. Elizabeth Kerry Kerry, who lately of the Greens, who's somehow gone independent, and um, Julie and Genta, who's a minister, I think, um, for the Greens, that they were particularly rude. How did that manifest itself? Oh, it was just the attitude, like when you were actually giving a submission, their facial expressions, they'd flick off their cameras, and then after, when they're asking their questions, they'd just go on the attack. They wouldn't actually ask you about your submission at all and the points you were making. They would just have a go at why you were so anti-trans and why you, yeah. And there was one where um, Speak Up for Women did a submission, and and excuse me, sorry, I've got building going on in the background, so if there's banging and you can hear it, I apologise. Um, where, yeah, Beth Johnson from Speak Up for Women did a submission and um, Kitty Kitty cut a clip of it and put it on her Facebook page to literally take the piss out of Beth. It was just appalling so yeah well interestingly it's an mp who's meant to sit there and listen with an open mind because you know mm. they're getting feedback to you know take on public sentiment mm. so they can feed that back into the bill but no it was yeah it's too late now but that would be an instant breach of privilege on the basis that it's one of the rules of parliament that you can't impede um someone for giving a submission and mocking them in that way and putting on Facebook in normal times would be sent to the privileges committee and the MP scolded in no uncertain terms. Because the whole point of our parliament is that any citizen has a right to come along and be heard and to be heard respectfully. And I know when I was an MP, which was not that long ago, committee chair people would fall over themselves. There could be no rudeness. And you might sit there and listen to things 
that were pretty shocking um, to you, but there's no way you would be disrespectful. Um, the standards are, on these issues have become so inflammatory or inflamed, funnily enough, not from us, but by those that are pushing it. And so our parliamentary standards, I mean, I just find that so shocking. That's shocking in and of itself. Yeah, it was really you, disappointing. Really you disappointing. Would, uh, you would um, abuse someone and they get away with it. And, of course, I think that abuse comes and that mischaracterization occurs because there's no argument for this. No, they don't want the debate because they can't debate it. Because when you get to the crux of the issues, they don't have a response to the concerns at all. Now, the Speak Up for Women group, what, did they commission the poll, did they? Yes, they did. So, yeah, they've just recently commissioned a courier poll. So they yes. wanted to ask, given the legislation comes into effect this Thursday, they wanted to ask the public how they felt about it. And I can't remember the exact question, but it was basically, do you agree with um, people being able to change the sex on their birth certificate without any scientific or medical, um, yeah, well, I can't think of what the wording yeah. is, sorry, but, like, you know, very, you know, yeah. Um, and basically only 20% of the public approved so there was a 56 disapproval rate and 24% unsure. But what was really interesting, that Labor and sorry, National and Act, you no know, 10% approval from National, which is understandable, 66% um, disapproved, Act only 13%. But Labor, even only 30% of Labor voters approve of this, yet they've pushed it through. Even the Greens, 41%, more people didn't agree with their policy than agree with it. So it just shows that they, they've pushed this agenda through without taking the public with them, without the public's support. But that doesn't matter because, you know, they know better, Rodney. Mm. Well, yeah. and of course, I could change my 1956 birth certificate to being female and then change it back. Yes, you can change it as many times as you like. And even young people can change it, I think, under... Is it between the age of 16 and 18, you've got to have somebody in authority sign that off as, yeah. you know, there's plenty of people that will do that now. Yeah. Um, and I think you can even change it younger if yes, a parent approves it. The, the Guardian can. Yeah. So yeah, the so Guardian, child's mind has even developed. <laughs> you know, let's, yeah. And, let's of course, presumably, and I'm only guessing here, presumably, it's not binary. There's not just male or female. My birth certificate could record, re record a complete kaleidoscopes of genders. That I'm actually not sure about, but I'm presuming that non-binary would have to be on there. And then if non-binary is on there, well, that's such a made-up thing. I mean, God, you could probably be a furry on this. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> I was born a furry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, that's getting a bit ridiculous. It, but, you know, but that's but a strange thing. Because literally five years ago, 10 years ago, this would be a mad joke that you'd sort of point the finger and laugh, oh, this will be next, and you, you'd never contemplate it. Now, here's the thing. I got that poll, and it said that it passed unanimously by parliament. Well, 
I'd fallen off my chair with the thought that I could change my birth certificate just by sending something into the Department of Internal Affairs. I didn't believe that all of Parliament would vote for this. Parliament don't even know that all of Parliament have voted for this. <laughs> We've met MPs who are adamant no. that they didn't vote for it. Yep. No. Because they had no idea. Because of was, COVID or yeah, just there was, surreptitious? Yeah, yeah, I think it was a, a number of different things. The way the bill was handled, the fact that the media refused to bring up any of the concerns about it. Yeah, just it was... It, the process was so flawed going through this that yeah, most MPs had no idea of of it being in there. And the ones that did just thought that because of all of the stuff that happened through South, through all of the other government departments, that it probably wasn't a bad thing and it wouldn't really make a difference. And yeah, so it wasn't of great concern. But no, we've had ACT MPs, a number of them, say, no, we didn't vote for that. Yep, yes, you did. <laughs> you did. And national MPs? Yes, and National MPs, and we raised our concerns with them as well. And I think they were, they saw how the media kicked back against Speak Up for Women. I mean, Speak Up for Women had to go to court to get a ruling that they couldn't be called an anti-hate or hate group and anti-trans because that's how the media were portraying them and that councils were stopping their bookings when they were having trying to have a speaking tour during all the lockdowns, et cetera, you know, but in between. But yeah, but they were cancelling their venues to talk about this issue, to simply raise concerns that females had about how their safe spaces could be protected from males and whether that's changing rooms, sports, prisons, you know, our most vulnerable women in prisons, our hospitals, hospitals all of that thing. And yeah, basically we had to get a court ruling, or Speak Up for Women had to get a court ruling to say that they weren't a hate group because that's how the media were portraying them. And so, of course... MPs were so scared of it, they didn't want to touch it. And I think that's why we saw the likes of that. Just they, they decided if they voted against it, and I, like I'm this is my perception of it, that if they voted against it, the media would hammer them. They would better yes. just fly under the radar and not do anything about it. And they weren't worried enough to act. Well, you're very kind because I think they're unspeakable. And I uh, when you're a parliamentarian, um, sometimes you actually have to take a stand. And I would expect when you're in opposition, there's no requirement that you support the government. No, but now you have to support the party. I listened to a really good, you did a political podcast the yes. other day with a young guy, and I, that was really interesting. But I think what we've seen with MMP is that MPs no longer represent the people, no. they represent the party. And so well, if the party says we're not going to, I mean, we saw that with Simon O'Connor, how he was treated with um, the lady, is it Maureen Pugh? Yes. You know, anyone that has a difference of opinion to the party narrative is quickly shut down and they go nowhere. I. I read Simon, is it, it's Connor, isn't it? Not O'Connor. Simon O'Connor. Simon O'Connor. Yeah. I read his speech when it was going back to the select committee and he was clearly signaling the problems and his unease. But of course he didn't get to speak when it came back and his vote was recorded by his party in favour. Was it Nicola Grigg that spoke for the National Party. Yeah. Um, 
her speech, I don't know the lady. I don't think I'd ever heard of her before. So it's nothing. I don't have any. She may well be lovely. But I read her speech, whooping up how wonderful this was and how the National Party is inclusive and caring and welcomes trans people and they're all human, as do you and I. So I have nothing against a trans person. Um, I just don't want them um, teaching my kids to be drag queens. I don't want them in my kids' um, changing area if they're male or sports. But I have nothing against any human being. But this lady got up and explained how the National Party is welcoming of diversity and all this, all inclusive and all the right words, and was very derogatory of anyone who had none ease over this, as though you're some sort of troglodyte. And it was the most remarkable display of sort of virtue signaling that making sure that the National Party could not be labelled as conservative or religious or um, that it was right on board with this agenda. And I thought, oh, my God. Mm -hmm. She could have been an extreme Green MP. Her speech could have been Elizabeth Kerry Kerry's. Yeah, and, and we, we met we met with her, and tell me what she's to like. listen. And oh, she seemed lovely. She listened to all of our concerns, and yeah, and she said that she was meeting from people across the spectrum. Which, to give her credit, you know, she did. But I think when it came down to it, you have a whole lot of young people now running the prime minister's comms up there, mm. and they and that you have a national party who are shit scared of going against the media because you know we just see how the media treats the right it's appalling so they're trying to appease the media all the time when they're never going to appease the media they need to actually stand for something and you know for people for women <laughs> you know they've allowed they've allowed this whole nonsense over you know luxon and contraception to go to go on without challenging how labor have undermined women's rights more Can you than imagine anybody that, else can you imagine Look, I'm not very good at politics, clearly. But can you imagine how well Chris Luxon would go if he just stood up for his undoubted Christian principles, called it like it is, spoke his mind, and said, yes, I am a Christian, right? And this is wrong. The mm -hmm. media would go nuts. He would hose in. And the poll, the Courier poll showing that even for Labour, the overwhelming majority of Labour voters don't support this. We we have a little Wellington bubble of MPs and bureaucrats that are so out of touch with what is ha happening in voter land. Christopher Luxon would fly off the charts to me. I mean, I know of no one that A, knows of this, or B, when you tell them, think it's a good idea. The... ACT MPs, David Seymour and Dr. James Cameron, is that James McDowell? James McDowell. James McDowell. Yeah. They tried to take a, a philosophical argument, which was like dancing on a pin. And they tried to say that, oh, well, we believe in freedom and therefore you can be free to wear a frock and call yourself a girl. And I think, yeah, I get that. 
and I'm free to you know, make my own judgment of people that do that. But you're not free to walk into a woman's space or a woman's sport. And you're not free to change facts or to change history. It yeah, was it's, some, not, it's, it's not like that we ever asked to see people's birth certificates, right? No one no, ever asked to see people's no. birth certificates. But what we had is a social contract. So yeah. there was a social contract between men and women so that if a man walked into a woman's changing room, room women felt comfortable enough to say, you do not belong here, out you go. And what this has done is this has... And men felt out. comfortable enough to beat them up. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but now what's happened is basically we've lost that ability to challenge because now when women challenge males in their changing rooms or in their sports teams, they're females. They're told that they have transitioned, that they need to be more tolerant and accepting of diversity. And And women have to just shut up and tolerate it. They have achieved the objective of becoming a woman. Yeah. Because legally... They are a woman. They were born a woman, according to their birth certificate, even though, oh, my God, how could we end up talking about sex endlessly is another horrifying thing because it's yucky beyond belief. Now, you've obviously thought about this a lot. We know from our reading that typically, historically, there's estimated to be one in a hundred thousand, one in a hundred and twenty thousand people who feel they're in the wrong body. And up until the 90s or something, it was actually treated as a psychiatric illness. And it got changed to a condition called gender dysphoria. And it was recognized as a thing. So you'd regard Georgina Bayer as a gender dysphoric no longer uh, a psychiatric uh, illness, but a condition, and you respect that condition, and they respect your position. And their point is they just want to be accepted as a human being. And back in the day, there was no demand to enter sport. Um, People suffering gender dysphoria um, weren't very sporty. And there for my meeting with trans groups and people, they weren't pushy. No. I mean, um, they were very genuine in how they felt, and um, you would have empathy for them. But now that has changed. But my point is, this is... And even in the proponents, like the ACT Party, were saying, oh, look, it's just a few people and have no impact on you. So why are we redesigning everything for this tiniest of tiniest minorities? And what is the real agenda? Oh, I think they want to destroy sex completely. That's all into transhumanism now, and you know, basically there. meddling around with human beings. You know, it's yeah. When it's, I first inter- in- interviewed you, 
I genuinely believe that you were on the right path and it was Save Our Women's Sports because I, you explained it to me that if you allow men to willy-nilly enter women's sports, no women's sports would exist. It would be destroyed. But it's deeper than that because it could be called to save our woman. Mm. Yeah, and save our children. <laughs> yeah, because well. they're destroying the concept of a woman. Yeah, they are. Look, I saw there was a Canadian school the other day and they called women non-men. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, that's what we've become now, just non-men. You know, we you know, this government has so part of their agenda was erasing women, the word woman and legislation. So we had an example of that last week, a couple of weeks ago, sorry, I presented to the sport integrity and recreation bill. And so all of the research and all of the background information was based a lot on the experiences of women. That was why then they felt there was the need to create this sports and recreation commission that could create integrity codes to help guide sports with how to deal with various issues. And they were incorporating um, drug-free New Zealand into it and, and making it one good big commission. Where our concern came in was that they um, there was no mention of women when the final bill came out no mention of women in there whatsoever, but of course, Rainbow Organization, Rainbow Community, um, Māori, Pacifica, et cetera, all of the other people that had been based in the research and analysis to develop the policy were there, but women were gone completely. And our concern was that the sports minister is going to um, nominate who these commissioners are that are going to sit there and create these integrity codes, given he is already told Sport New Zealand to prioritise inclusion over fairness for females, it's it's completely possible that he will tell the, the commissioners that he elects that he wants an integrity code to say that anyone can self-identify into the, into the category they like and no one can complain, which is already in Sport New Zealand's guidelines, but creating an integrity code means that there will be a process that will actually discipline anybody that does as well in sports that don't adhere to it. So, yeah, but it, it's just everywhere. Even our midwifery association is a raising woman too it's yeah it's actually well, midwifery is a sort of peculiarly woman focused thing right oh my god yes <laughs> yeah yeah and plunkett yeah um yeah. the thing that leads me to despair in new zealand is that national and the act party are totally on board with this madness have given no indication that they oppose it in any way, shape, or form. Um, we're going to have to have words about this heading into the election because it's an extraordinary position. But as you say, when you look overseas and when you look here, uh, there's a groundswell building. When you look overseas, um, we've had the wonderful Matt Walsh who um, has done an outstanding job highlighting and uncompromising explaining, particularly his documentary, What is a Woman? And also sort of going undercover to find out what's going on in these hospitals where they're doing, quote, gender-affirming care. Um, we've seen the Tavistock um, expose in the UK uh, for listeners that aren't aware of this, Tavistock was a, quote, gender-affirming care hospital 
where they'd basically transition you and do surgery to, if you're a woman, take your breasts off, young girls, um, make up genitalia, same thing for boys, shocking, and give them shocking hormones. And it was exposed by a journalist in a book. And the crazy thing is, so there's something like 80% of the boys that were transitioned were considered to be either gay or autistic. Yeah, it's the biggest gay conversion therapy either. It's appalling. There was actually another announcement out of the UK last week, which is which is just brilliant. And that is the NHS now are stopping this prescription of puberty blockers totally unless it's part of a clinical trial. So they have recognised the danger puberty blockers cause to young people and they have stopped it completely. Meanwhile, in New Zealand, we hand, it out, hand them out as easily as the pill. And we have the likes of Inside Out going into schools and promoting them as a way to stall your puberty while you decide who you want to be. Uh, and it's fully reversible and safe. Not at all. Yeah, no, but that's, but that's, that's, that's the say. line. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the UK joins a number of countries, I think Sweden, Norway as well, who were the ones that, you know, started the whole gender thing off probably the earliest out of anybody mm-hmm. that reversed their policies as well. So we we just need to see New Zealand come into line as well. And gosh, if you care about the health and well-being of children, you think it would be a priority to make sure that you weren't giving them anything that could potentially harm them, right? But we are. I mean, the only the only um, ground that we've made is we've got the um, Health New Zealand has taken off the fact that they are safe and reversible from their website. They've removed that now. Mm, I saw that. And there was an argument over that, right? Yeah, yep. there was a lot of unhappy activists over that one. Yeah. Um, the legacy media, by which I mean TV news, radio news, the newspapers now, mostly online stuff, and the New Zealand Herald, they are extremely culpable in running one story and literally telling lies about anyone that questions it. Which is to say, they won't report your point of view. Now, this was a um, this is just jumping up in my mind. They won't report your point of view because it would create a fake balance because you're anti-trans and 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 do you recall what I'm talking about? Yeah. Tell yeah. me that one. Can you oh. can you recall it enough? That, that, well, there's been so many. <laughs> yeah. The, so the idea is. Oh, but was this the, was the news hub? There was this the sorry news talk when they were going to interview me and they rang me to ask me some pre questions and I gave them my opinion on something and they said no we can't we won't ask you that question because we can't have that opinion. We'll be we'll get done by the broadcasting standards authority or something. Yeah. Well, it's what? that. And there was one another one about they labelled someone that was pointing out about the Ministry of Health changing it on puberty blockers, Jane, uh, what's the lady's name, who's doing a wonderful job. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is our legacy media are fully on board with this, and it was no more apparent, and I think this got cut through to Kiwis with Kelly J. Keane and her visit, where essentially, well, 
it's not essentially, but it was clear. The, the, the media decided, the legacy media decided that she shouldn't speak, she shouldn't be into the country, and inflamed the rhetoric and emboldened activists to attack her and attack people that attended her meeting. And to, so it was closed down and then whooped it up as a victory for inclusion. Mm-hmm. And her simple point was that, like you and I and most people, men shouldn't be able to play sport, women's sport, shouldn't be able to enter women's changing room. For saying that, she was labelled a Nazi and attacked. Now, the great thing about that is this massive overreach, I think, has cut through to New Zealanders. Would you say? Yes, definitely. Definitely. I had, you know, as an example, a neighbour over at the beach contact me after that because, uh, you know, I had a tweet. I think it was after actually um, Chris Hipkins struggled with the what is a woman question and completely embarrassed herself internationally. Um, And there was a media article that had my tweet in it. And she contacted me straight away and went, oh, my God, Ro, I didn't know who Kelly J was. I had no idea that all of this was going on until this all blew up. Now I've read everything and I totally agree with you. So Mm. I think, you know, that's just one example. Yeah, I'm sure it's like. And so this legacy media are a big part of the problem. And we recognize that that legacy media by Chris Luxon and maybe the ACT Party, I don't know. They may just be philosophically confused. I can't figure it out. But you certainly sense with National that they allow the woke MPs to speak on this because they don't want to be attacked by the legacy media. Yeah. But if we can see through it, and if they lose their effectiveness, surely there's hope for getting this put right. So what we have got, another thing, another win, small though it may be, that we got from the legislation is they said they'd do a five-year review on it. But I don't know how they're going to do that. We have to push for it and we need to. So that's something we're going to be pushing political parties for. But the question is, how do you review it? How do you determine how many women have stopped playing sports or stopped using changing rooms or toilets because they're no longer comfortable? How are you going to research that and analyse it properly? Do we have to wait to see the female participation rate in sport decline? You know, and and, yeah, it's it's going to be a really challenging one. If 500 people change their sex on their birth certificate, and then you review it in five years' time, do you change their birth certificate unilaterally from the top? I mean, it doesn't make sense, does it? No. Um, no. That whole whole review. So as we've seen, parties like National don't really unwind anything either. No. And ACT hasn't shown any passion for unwinding this either like they just don't want to touch it it's much easier not to touch it and just to let it go and women just will pay the price but you know if it gets really really bad and then the media finally acknowledge it's bad maybe the politicians will have the guts to do something about it (laughs) they said in the bump supporting the bill that some 15 or other countries or jurisdictions like you know tasmania why you'd want to follow tasmania beats me but um have similar legislation and that this is the way of the future. Have you looked at any of those other jurisdictions and what has happened? 
Yeah, and most of the legislation is quite recent, right? So there isn't a lot of evidence. You know, it's only really been in the last few years that this ideology has perpetuated across the world. But, you know, in Ireland and you know, the places that where it's been there a bit longer, they, they are having multiple issues. You know, women are being raped in prison by men who are self-IDing into women's prisons. California, it's atrocious. The women fear for their lives in prisons in California because they literally, California must be like, I think, the worst in the world at the moment for its legislation that undermines women's rights. But these women's ha women have no rights at all. And I think they had something like 270-odd um, males who self-identified as women as soon as the legislation came through. They were all, including sex offenders, transferred to women's prisons. It's just appalling. They're having to put um, contraception in women's prisons now because, you know, the birth rate was going up. You know, it's... Yeah, it's appalling. But when women raise concerns, you know, Dan Andrews was a good one in Victoria. He was saying, yeah, there's been no issue with sex self-ID over there. There has been so many concerns raised by women, but if they don't acknowledge them, Rodney, then apparently they don't happen. No, well, there's that uh, example. I think it's in Andrew Doyle's book, The New Puritans, where a family complained because their family member female was raped in hospital. Mm. and the female patient in hospital couldn't get anyone to complain for her. The police turned up and were sent away by the hospital because she said, no, she's in an all-female ward. But it there was a, years to get yes, accountability for that, didn't it? There was a male in the ward. Yeah. Now, that has to be against every human right that you can think of. Imagine the prisons. You're, a, you're a, a woman locked up by the state, confined, but you're confined with an aggressive, strong, violent rapist. Yeah, and unfortunately... Our trans community, like the research that's been done from the UK, um, the trans community have a higher prevalence of sex offending rates than men do. Wow. Well, isn't this, isn't this, I, I look, I struggle to interview because I sort of, my mind explodes every time I think about it. Isn't this like a paedophile's charter? Yeah. Look, like, no. if I'm a paedophile, I can, Go online. Oh, you know, when I say paedophile, attracted, I'm a man attracted to young Oh, girls. minor attracted person? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I go online, I self-ID, and I enter the girls' changing rooms at the local swimming pool, and I can sit there all day. Yeah, and we had one, we had a grandmother of a 12-year-old girl who was attending a pool down, she was in a swim school down in Wellington, or like just a public swimming pool, but in a swim squad. And after her um, swimming, she went to get changed and there was a male just sitting in there. And she ran out and said to her mum, look, mum, there's a male man in the changing room. And so the mum went to the pool admin person and they went and asked him to leave. He refused, so they rang the police. The police came and said, we can't ask him to leave because he identifies as a woman. So the consequence of that was that the little girl doesn't use the changing room. She's too scared. You know, she ended up, I think her grandmother said she ended up 
um, going to the pool still, going to swim training, but not using the changing rooms. So she'd go home in her wet togs. But in the mornings, when she started swimming in the mornings, she used to go from swimming to school. She just couldn't go. She stopped going in the mornings and then got dumped from the swim, swim squad because she wasn't attending enough trainings. But what one consequence of this opening up women's spaces to males is that it recasts two common male sex crimes as rights, exhibitionism and voyeurism. They can do them and women cannot say or do anything now because of this. So an exhibitionist male, and of course, we used to think of this when I was growing up as a joke that like no one really did it, but it is a thing. It is. I got flashed when I was younger. Really? Yeah. I remember walking, I was just walking along um, Memorial Drive in Hamilton along beside this park and this guy yelled out and I turned around and I was 14 years old and he was like, you know, Wanking had his, out had, in the bushes. It was like, all right. So it, it it's happened for ages. And in fact, now I it can saw happen in a changing room when you're in close proximity. It's yeah. And so this is a thing, right? Which is hard to get your head around for guys, right? You can't imagine this. So they like to exhibit themselves to young girls, and it's a crime. And they get off by seeing a 14-year-old girl see their, for want of a better word, penis. Now, they, in our imagination, hide out in Memorial Ave behind a bush and sort of jump out when no one's looking and a young 14-year-old girl's walking by and they get their rocks off by traumatising this poor girl. And if they get caught by the police, they'll be prosecuted. So that's exhibitionism. Then there's, we used to call it flashes. A person would be a flash and you had a mental image of a guy in a coat who would be flashing his coat open. Then you have voyeurism, which is what we call a peeping Tom. And they like peering through a girl's window at night and watching them undress and stuff these are sick people but now we've made it legal and they can do it in changing rooms without anyone being able to say anything without consequence so i can be a peeping tom go down to the local uh swimming pool and just sit there all day yeah, so we had um, there was a guy in a gym in Nelson who was just sitting in the women's changing room for ages, and these two older women went in and were like, first of all, they thought they'd gone into the wrong changing room, right? So they walked back out. No, this is the females. Walked in, and all the girls were sort of hidden around the corner or getting changed in the toilet cubicles. And they were like, this isn't right. So went down to the gym receptionist, and, and she said, no, he's transitioning to a woman. You have to be tolerant and accepting get over your prejudice basically and they went back up and they're like this is ridiculous he's still just sitting there perving i mean they just stopped using the gym so <laughs> when you meet with the act mps and the national mps and you mention this sort of stuff right how did they respond <sighs> they just don't really acknowledge the concerns it's yeah I don't know. You don't get much back in response. Like they, so they really. I mean, I got the sense of them 
with the ACT Party at least, when they spoke in Parliament and National, oh, yes, we've listened to everyone, you know, how virtuous are we? But they didn't respond to the argument. No. It was a fake listen and a fake consultation because when they gave their speeches, the ACT Party in particular, there was no downside to this legislation. I'm going to get his name wrong, Dr. James McDowell. I think. McDowell. He yeah. specifically said, you can change your birth certificate, means a lot to you because you identify as something other than those on your birth certificate, and it has no consequence to anyone else. Well, that's where he's wrong. Yeah, I think they don't don't understand the social harms. They're not severe enough for them to actually act on. So unless it becomes a police issue, they don't want to know. It's not not big enough for them to deal with, even though the harm caused to girls and women in respect to their confidence, their dignity, their public safety, their decency, and just simply to have privacy is definitely there. But it's not big enough for them to do something about it. So... (laughs) I could be a convicted paedophile. I could be on the sex offenders register and I could change my sex. Yes. You're nodding your head in agreement. Oh, my goodness. Mm. And amongst 120 MPs, all the heads of government departments, no one saw a problem with this or better probably better put, no one who saw a problem with this spoke up. Correct. What what they did acknowledge, there could be an issue in regards to corrections and how corrections deal with this. We already have males who self-identify as women in women's prisons now, but they have a process, and I'm pretty sure they haven't put sex offenders in there yet. And so the reason that this legislation was delayed and coming into effect until now because it was passed in 21 is that they wanted to give time for corrections to come up with the process, as I understand it, to deal with this issue. I'm not sure what that is as yet, but yeah, that was the the only concern they had. And we saw in um, Scotland when they tried to pass this similar type legislation, and they were trying to pass a, a law as well that said that even if they were sex offenders, et cetera, and that's when the public, the big backlash against Nicola Sturgeon really started because it was like, this is ridiculous. Then they had an example of a sex offender who had gone into a woman's prison too. So it all, it was all just perfectly timed to stop the nonsense going as far as it could have over there. But yeah, here just no, no one spoke up about the concerns. Well, I take my children swimming and the big pool that we go to is, you know, half an hour away. And so they always get changed in the ladies' changing area. And my little 10-year-old is very, very sweet and very naive and very impressionable and anxious. I've just made a decision. She's never entering that changing shed again. No, and as a parent, I probably wouldn't either. If you know, if I had daughters, I'd be going in there with them. Yeah. I just, I, and even toilets and restaurants and bars. You know, like if you're at a restaurant with your family, I don't know if I'd let my young daughter go to the toilet by herself either. It just, yeah, 
I just don't, I can't. It's hard to. going to be safe spaces anymore. So what's going to happen at some point, there's going to be an incident, isn't there? Yeah, there are. Women are going to have to pay the price, just as we are in sports already, before common sense will prevail. And I don't know what that's going to take and how bad that's going to have to be. And there'll probably be excuses the first time, you know, like it's an isolated incident. You know, probably multiple women and girls are going to have to pay the price before action is taken. And that could be... um an exhibitionist in the changing room? No, that probably won't be enough because how do you prove they're actually being an exhibitionist and they're not just walking around getting changed? <laughs> well, yeah. I, 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 I would have thought, I would have thought that a man walking around a, a, a changing room anywhere in New Zealand amongst girls and women would cause such an outrage it would be over, but I suppose it wouldn't get any publicity. No, the media wouldn't publicise it at all. No, it would be very lucky to to get the media to report objectively on this issue at all. Yeah, you know, what what is really sad though is that we have had trans women for you know decades that have used yes. women's spaces, but they have gone through full sex change operations. They have been yeah, they have been so nervous about using those spaces that they wouldn't feel comfortable using them until they felt that they'd passed. And I think women, as women, we saw that they were making a concerted effort. Most of the time you could still identify that they were male, but we we saw that they were, had made such an effort to try to pass and to fit in, and they weren't putting themselves right in front of your faces. They, you know, they were keeping quite quiet about it and and trying to fly under the radar, whereas it's quite the opposite now. And unfortunately, they have been impacted negatively by this because now there's a a growing backlash to the whole trans thing and they're caught up in it. And they're not part of this activism. And, you know, as women, I think by far the majority of us were quite welcoming and inclusive of them in our spaces because they weren't threatening. They weren't a bloke in a dress with a hairy chest and a, you know, and a beard. I know. (laughs) Just yeah, not even trying to pass, not even trying to fit in, just trying to basically have power over women and yeah. Well, the good news is this, listeners: we have got Row Edge standing up, a flag bearer. We've got Speak Up for Women. Your web page is Save Our Women's Save Women's Sport. Save Women's Sports. Yes. uh, Dot com. Go to these sites. Read the material, subscribe. Speak Up for Women is another one that are very good. Yeah, actually, can uh, I just say Speak Up for Women have really good guidance too. Like if you run a, a service, like a service industry where you have sex segregated spaces or you are involved in sports, Speak Up for Women on their website, if you go to their campaigns tab and Sex Up South ID, they have they've had a legal opinion written in terms of how you can right. protect female spaces so and or if you are involved with trying to advocate for women as we saw down at Invercargill with the swimming pool down there there was a group that, that really was great against, that it was, was great. That stood up against council and you know I sent them a whole lot of information council a whole lot of information that that day because they were getting it wrong they thought they couldn't protect female spaces and that's the perception so it's really important for everyone to know that any service that you deal with can, any sport you deal with can, and it, but it's up to you, the public, to apply the pressure on them to ensure they do, because otherwise they're only going to get pressure one way. And then we've got this other great development that is 
if you go a lot this year, every MP and then some are going to be begging you for their your vote. And ordinarily, if you got up and asked about sport or what's happening there, they could genuinely sympathize with you and say, well, look, you know, they'll look, they'll fix it, or it's nothing to do with them. But on the birth certificate, which is even more significant, because this isn't policy, this is legislation that you can change your birth certificate to whatever, they voted for it. And they agreed with it. And they can't agree with that and then oppose trans or men entering women's sports. They've, they can't. They, are, they have cast their vote. And so I would recommend to everyone to take the opportunity, at every opportunity, and I'll be writing to my local MP, um, to ask them, why did they vote for this? Yeah, and once again, actually, Speak Up for Women have some excellent questions that you can ask MPs on their website. So campaigns, and then there's an election one. And it's simple questions like, will you commit to protecting spaces and services exclusively for biological women? Will you commit to keeping women's sport exclusively for biological women? Like just really good questions that cut to the core of what the issues are because they like short questions, especially if you go and see them in a meeting scenario. And I actually Mm. went to an ACT meeting a couple of weeks ago and asked David Seymour a few questions and it, it was actually good. So it's it's really good to challenge them. Did you get good answers? Yes. Well, what was interesting is the meeting started off and one of the first guys asked him what a woman was. And I just sat there and went, oh, yes. <laughs> like, I had no idea who this guy was. So I was about the sixth question. And and I just, you know, I said, well, would he consider getting Sport New Zealand to remove this, the their transgender guidelines and leave it up to the sports to come up with their own their own rules without having government pressure mm. or agency pressure. And he seemed open to that. He said he was against unnecessarily unnecessary government regulation. So it's definitely worth doing. And you know, yeah. the and my question's got applause. So there's the feeling there within the community, there is the support there. And that survey by Speak Up for Women that through the Curia polling shows that. Yes. So don't be scared to speak up because the majority of people will agree with you. Absolutely. That's what the wonderful news is out of that poll out of this morning, that we can take heart and that there is an elite that has somehow lost their way through COVID or something that is so out of touch um, with common sense. Um, It's breathtaking. Ro, I thank you for joining us. I thank you for all, all the work that you do. I thank you for taking the trouble to work through all this material and then to give a submission. And at times you might feel a little bit lonely, but man, have you got a lot of support, particularly from us. And anytime you've got something you're bursting to say, um, you've got a platform with uh, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde and RealityCheck.radio because what you're doing is just fabulous. So thank you for that. And likewise to you. Thank you guys for what you're doing and for having me on here as well. Uh, that was Row Edge uh, from Save women's sport it's i bumbled through that interview because i'm going along and my head just keeps exploding and i'm i i just find it so hard to comprehend why 120 members of a house of representatives representing all of us 
could be so insane. And I can't think of another word for it. Even if you're pro-trans and pro-choosing your gender and you can do all this, to change your birth certificate and not even show that it's been changed, that's like something out of year zero, Pol Pot or something. It's extraordinary. Send us your thoughts on text by 2057. Send us an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. And thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the wonderful Row Edge. She's my hero. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to Basics in the Political Sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde and we've got our regular guest, Tane Webster, for Politics Explained, Back to Basics in the Political Sandpit. So, Tane, what's the question today? Hey Rodney, great to be here. So the question for this week, there's been a lot of talk recently about minor parties and, and wasted votes. So I thought the question for this week could be, why is there a 5% threshold for new parties to get into parliament? Great question. Um, in a way, it's totally arbitrary. As I recall the original thinking, imagine this, it's to stop Hitler. Um, the idea being that sort of Hitler got a platform by getting in on a small vote or something. That was it back in 1996. Um, and so you had to set a threshold. So in terms of voting, only parties above a certain popularity could get into parliament and get a platform. I can't recall whether it was originally proposed at 4%, but there have been reviews to lower it from 5 to 4 It makes a huge difference to the smaller parties. One thing voters don't want to do is waste a vote. 
And if you're hovering around 1%, it's impossible to get to the 5% because people say, oh, well, I'll vote for, vote for you and it won't count because you won't get in. And that's very, very hard to argue with. Uh, what changed for ACT originally was first winning Wellington Central, which we then lost, and then winning the seat of Epsom. Because if you have an electorate seat, the 5% threshold doesn't count. So, for example, if you have an electorate seat and get 2% of the vote, you'll get two or three MPs, even though you're under the 5%. And the idea there is you're, you're in anyway because you've won a seat and you're not on the margins of politics if you're winning a constituent seat. So that's the logic. It also serves the interests of the two big parties who basically set the electoral rules because the big parties set all the rules around elections. Yeah, they consult with the public. Yes, they consult with um, the minor parties, but they have the numbers to set the rules. And of course, they don't want the smaller parties getting in. Uh, the less small parties get in. I mean, what would suit the two big old parties, Labour and National, would there to be just two parties, um, like there was under First Past the Post. And don't forget, to a person, I believe, uh, all the old parties opposed MMP. Uh, i got a, another reason why I think there needs to be a threshold, and this is, I don't know if this has ever been written down, but it occurs to me as really the clincher. And it's this. Imagine in the extreme you had no limit, except that 5% is arbitrary. It could be 4, could be 3, could be 6, could be 10. It's an arbitrary number that's been hit upon. But imagine if there was no limit, and as long as you got enough party votes to get one MP in, then you're in, right? So you could form a political party, Tane Webster's uh Freedom Party, and you get 0.8% of the vote, right? Well, you would become an MP. But there'd probably be 10 or 15 individuals that might do that, right? So then you've got 10 MPs, 15 MPs, who are all represented as individual parties. At that point, you've got no election result because we know under MMP that it always comes down literally to two, three, or four MPs deciding who the government is. So these independent MPs would actually get to decide who is government. You can imagine the two big parties running around trying to corral the 10 or so individually MPs to get five of them on side and to form a government. And so they'd give those MPs in terms of policy, whatever they wanted. Once the government is formed, it would be unstable because you'd literally have five individual MPs able to pull out at any stage and collapse the government. So I would say if you had no limit, you would be having coalitions form after much horse trading with no public input. 
and you'd have governments collapsing literally every six months. You wouldn't have a stable government. And so I think you would, you do actually have to have a limit. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there should be no limit either. The, I think the question is, uh, what should the threshold be? And recently, the Independent Electoral Review, uh, they put out their draft recommendations, which included some things like lowering the age to 16, which we won't go into, but also lowering the party vote threshold from 5 to 3.5%. And there's mixed opinions out there on that, but I I was one of the people I did put a submission in uh, to, to lower it. And I tend to think, yeah, 3.5 or 4% would, would be an improvement on what we've currently got because people, it's 5% actually means more than 5%. Because yes. no one's going to vote for you if you if you're just polling at five percent, or you or the people are going to be a little bit concerned if you're borderline. So you you know a five percent threshold really means you've you've got to be getting something like five and a half or six. Oh no, I I concur. I can see your logic. Uh, if you had say three percent, because why we're at about point five. If you had a three percent uh, threshold, it would mean you'd vote for the party on offer that you most prefer. Because even if it's polling at 0.5 or polling 0 or polling 1, you'd think, look, it's got a chance. With 5, it hasn't got a chance. And so I think you would get a truer vote. You wouldn't get a great raft of political parties getting in at, say, 3%, but you'd get the opportunity for a new party to enter our parliament. And that's what bothers me about our present system. Our present system is entirely locked up by existing parties. Uh, historically, it's been extremely difficult for a new party outside parliament to get into parliament because for some reason, if, you know, Tane Webster stands for his own political party, it's not he's not regarded by the voters as serious because they only think in terms of the existing political parties. And the journalists, sadly, are in the system and only report the existing political parties. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so I think, yeah, what, what would be your ideal percentage then? Oh, I would say three. Yeah. Because I know what it's like to be facing oblivion every election. And until we got the seat of Epsom, we would be written off by the media, the ACT Party would be, four or five months out from the election, or beginning in the election year. ACT's not going to make it. ACT's not going to make it. And, of course, they are creating a self-fulfilling prophecy because you'd go and meet even people that are contributing $20 a month to your party, and they're saying, I'm not going to vote for you because you're not going to make it. Can you imagine that? <laughs> They support you politically and then won't vote for you because the media are running the story that you're not going to make it. Um, so, no, that's uh, I'd go for 3% myself. And I, I believe in disruption. Um, I think we need a serious disruption uh, to our politics. We need, you know, we need an outside um, political party to get in. I don't know how it presents itself. Um, 
to disrupt it because what we have now is political insiders getting elected to politics and staying on the inside. It's It literally is a club. The opinion makers, the lobbyists, uh, the staffers, uh, the political insiders who all go along, you know, with the Wellington beltway, what we call it, narrative, they're the ones that are running things and reinforcing each other. And those of us on the outside um, literally have no say. Uh, we cannot influence the big parties because we see that they're selecting um, MPs from literally their own staff. I mean, it's extraordinary. You know, you can leave school, go to university, go and work for the National Party or the Labour Party or the union movement or a lobby group, and then put your name forward, get selected as a candidate, get on the list, and there you are. It's not really what I'd call a house of representatives. They don't represent the community. Whereas in the old days, we didn't pay MPs much, and they were elected from their constituency, and it was literally regarded as a public service when you'd had your career. Hmm. What do you think the chances are of these? Uh, well, the, the the so there's the series of draft recommendations, and one of them is lowering the voting threshold from five to three point five percent. What do you think the chances are of that actually being uh, going from a recommendation to actually being applied? I, I I'm not holding my breath, but no, I'd say next to zero. Yeah, because uh, what political party deciding upon this is in favour of that, you know. Um, because if you're the Green Party or the ACT Party, you're going to shed votes to another minor party if you did that. Mm. If yeah. you're Labour and National, um, you're going to just create a bigger nightmare for yourself because you do not want another party getting into Parliament. Um, you want the election to be a known quantity. So, so I'd say it's next to zero. Um, I have always been surprised how things happen. Um, I would have expected by now, funnily enough, for outside parties to be doing better because I think the government and the opposition so let us down through the COVID era and there was such a protest against the existing political parties, I thought there would be a third party emerge, you know, and take them on. Hasn't happened. I guess that's the conservatism of politics, which isn't a bad thing in normal times. But when your political system, which in my view has run out of control, become tyrannical, isn't actually conservative in any sense of the word, is radical government, and I include the opposition in that, what has happened has been radical in New Zealand. The changes in the last few years have been radical haven't had majority support, uh, National's not threatening to unwind them, uh, you would expect there's very, very fertile ground for a third party to emerge. Now, the person that can capitalise on that, funnily enough, is Winston Peters, because the 5% doesn't present such a hurdle for him, because people think, oh, yeah, Winston, uh, uh, he's in Parliament, right? They sort of think of him as a politician. He's been around forever. And so they will give him a party vote compared to 
uh, an outsider, an unknown standing. Uh, he's a known uh, quantity uh, in a sense. I think it would be horrific, but he's, he's going to benefit from the unease that we have with the major parties. Mm, mm. Those are all valid points. I feel like with all the disagreement that occurs amongst the various minor parties, a sort of a concerted push for this lowering the, the threshold could be something that they could all agree on and it, because it would be in all of their best interests, but that hasn't seemed to happen yet. No, it's a funny thing about agreement um, in politics. It's extremely hard to achieve. And even when you'd think it's so obvious, you know, you can't get it. And it's a funny business because even within your own party, you know, you've got to persuade, you've got to cajole, you've got to sort of almost bully people into positions because it's so hard, you know. And you see this in local government where the poor mayor is trying to do things. Not, I'm not talking about Auckland. I'm talking about all local government. And it's so easy for a councillor to sit on the sidelines and not make up their mind and sit on the fence. And then when you make a decision, throw rocks at you or give you the, say they're going to support you and then change their mind. This is the difficulty of politics. And um, in order to, to be a politician, you have to develop your ego and become egotistical. And in becoming egotistical, you know, you become difficult to deal with. <laughs> it's part of, you know, and so you have all these little parties. And I've done this when we set up ACT. I've met with all the little parties. And it's horrific because they all think they're going to get in. Um, they all think, you know, they're important. They all think that, you know, it's their way or the highway. And none of them ever make it into parliament. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think in closing, I'd say that at the end of the day, the long-term better future is just a more decentralised political system because it's whatever system, it, it ends up problematic. It ends yes, up problematic. Yes. There's problems, right. problems, but at least if it's decentralised, then we spread those problems and spread the risk and people can vo vote with their feet. If one area is not doing a good job, then they can move to another area in New Zealand. That's true, but ultimately... The way to decentralize is to decentralize to the individual and have no majority decision making other than where it's absolutely a necessity. And so that's why I'm a libertarian, because, you know, I don't want people telling me what to do uh, when I could decide for myself. Now, obviously, um, to a libertarian, sometimes I veer into anarchism. Um, there are things that you'd like to do collectively and it needs a collective vote and you live with it. But when government or councils are deciding what colour you can paint your barn, um, how far apart you have to stand beside people in a supermarket, when they're down to deciding those sorts of things, uh, they have lost the plot. And that's where we are right across the spectrum in New Zealand. And you don't solve that by decentralizing it, you solve it by saying, what should government decide, be deciding and what should it be leaving up to us? And in doing that, they have to allow for the fact that you and I will make mistakes, but we'll learn from them. The trouble with government is it makes mistakes, but it never learns because it never carries the consequence of their mistakes we do. 
And that's why personal decision-making is so much better because you carry the consequence of your own mistakes, whereas politicians never carry the consequences. In fact, they're rewarded for their mistakes. Everywhere you look, if they overspend their budget, they're rewarded by having more money. It's extraordinary. Well, Tane, we'll see you. Is it next week? Yes, I think so. Yeah, that's great. Tane, that was Tane Webster. That was uh, Political Politics Explained. We're just going to go over the things. One thing I want to cover off uh, probably next week is the difference between list MPs and electorate MPs because I've been both. And it's quite remarkable. I was quite shocked about becoming an electorate MP, how different it was. And I'd like to talk about that with Tane. That was Politics Explained, Back to Basics in the Political Sandpit with Tane Webster. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening in. Oh, and if you've got some political questions for us, send us a text at uh, 202057. 2057, send a text or email us, inbox at rallycheck.radio, and Tane and I will go through your questions and answer them. Thank you for listening. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, a favorite part, mailbag. Please send me a text, 2057. Uh, email me, inbox at realitycheck.radio. I sometimes feel as I'm sitting in a little room talking to myself, and then I get your feedback and your texts and your emails, and it's wonderful. Truly, truly wonderful. It's such a reward. So please uh, email me and text me. Uh, here's one. Uh, thanks, Rodney. I just listened to your brilliant interview with, quote, Sally Kathy Jameson. Oh, remember that? I kept calling her Sally. I couldn't get it out of my head once I got Sally in my head. I mandated Vax injured nurse when I listed my own CALM report under my professional login in 2021. The system kicked me out three times. Doctors around me working under extreme pressure did not have time to list events in a dysfunctional system. Oh, there's so much more. I thank you for her brilliant interview with you. Well, thank you so much. I We're going to have her back. Kathy Jameson, not Sally. She was so wonderful. Remember, she was looking at the adverse event reporting for the COVID uh, jab. Whoa, Rodney, this is from Amanda. I also have endometriosis and endomyosis and repeated surgeries to have taken me that have taken me up to six months to recover from, including a hysterectomy. It took me 20 years to get diagnosed, and I ended up so disillusioned with the medical industry, I've just had to get on with life as best I can. I'm now wondering if EDS is something I need to explore. Thank you for shedding some light on these hidden diseases. Many of us just suck up and suffer through, as so many don't understand the impact. Thank you. That's from Amanda. Well, thank you, Amanda. That's so lovely. And they were great interviews. A uh, great interview so far with Gemma. Her story has very similar parallels with my 30-year-old daughter. My uh, husband also has EDS, which has meant he's had osteoarthritis since he was in his early 30s. He has very poor wound healing. 
so can't have the knee surgery he needs. He limps along needing a cane sometimes. He cycles everywhere, which is a saving grace as it keeps his thigh muscle strong to support his gammy knees. He has the stretchy skin so different from daughter and Gemma. He'll listen to this after work. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, what a great, this is from Heidi. What a great interview with Gemma Verhoeven, Rodney. Thank you. Perhaps Gemma may like to research a different brand of lab food instead of Insure. Remember, she couldn't eat, so she was having this Insure product. I have found Nutrizon, N-U-T-R-I-S-O-N, energy multifiber, so much better starting with a lesser amount of added sugar as well, the emission of any inflammatory vegetable oil. Well, thank you for that tip, Heidi. Uh, morning, Rodney. It was inspiring to listen to Gemma. I too share a rare genetic disease called Elasticum, or PXE, with very similar manifestations that vary from sufferer to sufferer. My major result is a slow loss of my vision. Oh, you poor thing. Oh. There are only about five of us in the country. Tell Gemma's story with the medical fraternity is a very sad indictment of the medical education, not unlike what I experienced. Cheers, Raywin from Tauranga. Thank you, Raywin. And I hope that you're as best that you can be given the circumstances, that you're enjoying the show and know that we're you're in our love and in our prayers as a listener. Uh, this is from Helena. I use hemp seed oil in my skincare routine. It can be used for everything. You cannot get high off hemp. Hemp has been used for centuries. If you do some research on the history of hemp, you'll be amazed by how many products throughout history have been made with hemp. You'll find that the Egyptians also used it. These regulations are all about big pharma having control. I must say, that was a wake-up call from Richard Barge from the Industrial Hemp Society. Indeed it was. Hi, Rodney. This very witty video, which in brief sums up those who knock self-educational research. Oh, regards. oh, well, we'll have to put that somewhere so you can see it. Thanks, Fiona. Uh, from Mike. I struggle when you call any of our EMPs honourable. It's an oxymoron as far as I'm concerned, and I've yet to find any of our current MPs honourable. I do, however, agree with your feelings over Michael Wood, a real piece of scum if ever there was one, and I hope he hears my name over your broadcast. Cheers. Well, I'll give it to you. Mike from Foxton. Uh, thank you, Mike. Um, I always try and be respectful, and... Um, even, I mean, I'm respectful of pronouns if people ask me. Uh, I don't like all this performative pronoun use on your emails and that, but if someone prefers that I dress them a particular way, I happily do so. And also, I prefer to give people their titles unless they ask me otherwise. And I find it hard with the kids because I like them to talk about Mr. and Mrs., not adults by their first name. But these days, it's old school. Here we go. The River of Filth guy is having his dirty laundry being aired in public. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy, Rodney. And it was 12 times. Get with the latest. I know. I said six times that he'd been told to sell his shares. He got told 12 times over years and still didn't. 
is another one. 12 times on the news last night. Thanks, Raywin. Yes, indeed. Unbelievable. Uh, Rodney, I'd add to your comments regarding Michael Wood and his reprehensible comments made in Parliament about New Zealanders. As Minister for Workplace Safety, he may have been the minister responsible for the sections of the COVID Act that legislated the ability to make orders that mandated and subsequently injured some workers. Who that responsible minister was will be one of the submitted parliamentary questions. Thank you. That's from Kathy slash Sally Jameson, who was uh, one of our favourite interviews. Go, Rodney. Excellent assessment of the despicable Michael Wood. Rodney, 10 times Hipkin said he was reminded. No, it was 12. Husband and wife deserve what they're getting. Absolutely, and then some. Well said, Rodney. He needs to be held accountable. First time listener here, Rodney. Uh, Rodney talking about all the deaths caused by the COVID vaccine. I have no idea how accurate he is, but how does he account for the global deaths from COVID prior to the vaccine rollout? Well, um, here's how I do it. A lot of people died with COVID. We're not sure how many died because of COVID, but certainly if you're old and you're frail and you're suffering, uh, getting a respiratory virus is dangerous, including the flu. But clearly, getting the flu if you're young and healthy is something you can shake, including COVID. So why we had to put the fear of God up of everyone, I don't know. And in fact, the the, the people that died of COVID sort of mimicked how people would be dying anyway in terms of their age, uh, uh, the age of death. And how do we explain now the excess deaths that are occurring and the people we know and who we meet and who we've spoken to who have been injured by that jab that we were told was safe and effective? Well, it wasn't effective because it didn't work and it wasn't safe. How do we account for that? Uh, so yeah, hi, Rodney. Your recent talk on that despicable minister, Michael Woods, was the best bit of radio journalism that's ever hit anyways. Oh, that's kind. May it get put on the mainstream media for all Kiwis to hear. Thank you for your awesome, reflective, balanced viewpoints on our wounded culture inflicted by our present corrupt government. Indeed. Thank you for that. Mary, hi Rodney, from this mandated nurse, loving listening to you and your kindness, which emanates from RCR. Thank you, thank you to you and your wonderful colleagues. You're bringing back to New Zealand the beauty and reasonableness of free speech. God love you all. Thank you, Mary. We, um, it's not hard to be kind, is it? And be polite and be respectful. Um, back to the easiest thing in the world. I don't know why. People aren't. Uh, Rodney Moore on shares. More council have shares. Three culprits. None are declared. Go Mayor Brown. Our quite. Go Mayor Brown. Hey, Rodney, great show as usual. And with reference to Mr. Wood, that's why they're being called Liber. Cheers, Phil. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Great show. Terrible music. Whoops. Um, music's one of those things, isn't it? Hi, this is to all of you heroes. But at this moment, as I listen to the Natterbox, haha, Rodney speaking to Wood, you speak for us all. And so, Rodney, though I address all the RC men and women inclusively, mate, you're a gentleman. Briefly, wife and I were down from Auckland as part of the River of Filth. 
I felt my father and uncles from World War II and these before who fought for New Zealand in World War I. Dad would have been there. Mum would have been there. My daughter sacked, no vax, prosecuted for seeking medical help in lockdown, nearly. I can't say it. Wife sacked after working 20 years with autistic kids as despite a medical alert bracelet from childhood for life-threatening antibiotic vax allergy, our doctor didn't have the balls to write an exemption. One day I might tell their story, but it's far from unique. Thank you, RCR, Mark and Debbie. Well, thank you, Mark and Debbie. We're here for you and for all the people that have been excluded from society and unjustly treated by our government and by our parliament. Kingsley, good swipe at Mr Wood, well said. His wife should be more concerned as her vote on the council should be invalid. Maybe they could buy more shares. How is your view of Tammy Harry and the Maori Party funding? A charity sure is. Separation of church and state is accepted for political reasons. Tell Bishop Tamaki. How about separation of race and state? Surely our four Maori seats are a racist privilege. Off to the naughty corner, <laughs> Kingsley. <laughs> yeah. It's terrible how we've come to accept uh, graft, corruption, and racism as just the way politics is done. Uh, We shouldn't accept it, and we have to root it out everywhere we see it. And there shouldn't be Maori seats. Uh, They're a total anachronism, and there's no need for them, uh, particularly so that we have MMP. And we shouldn't be having any legislation that identifies people by race and distinguishes them. We shouldn't have any government department treating people not on the basis of need, but on the basis of race. That is wrong. That is divisive, and it is racist. And race is something that you're born with. There's nothing you can do about it. That's why it's so wrong to distinguish people on that basis. Because we're all God's creatures. We're all human beings. We should be all equal before the law. There shouldn't be a special race. There shouldn't be a put-down race. We should be all individuals, equal. You're listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Reality Check Radio. Send us a text, 2057. Send us an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, Thank you for tuning in and, and listening, especially this morning, because this morning I have my specialists Specialist, specialist, special guest of all time. Uh, This is a lady who changed my life, changed my wife's life. She went from being, feeling very, very sick to becoming incredibly healthy and changed our three children's lives and has changed lives all over the world and was 
a lady prescient in understanding what was happening to the world with big pharma and big food tech and experts within government and coming to us from Maryland, I think, Sally, <laughs> as Sally Falloon Morrell. She set up and was chairperson. She's now on the board of I'm still running it. <laughs> still running it. Oh, oh yeah, my hand. goodness. <laughs> of the Western A Price uh, Foundation. And I have said on the show before that there's only one diet book that is scientific. And that's a book that Dr. Western A. Price wrote with his wife called Human Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And there's one cookbook that you need <laughs> written by Sally called Nourishing Traditions. And the reason for this book being so special is that Dr. Price and his wife were able to undertake the most remarkable study. And they just had a one window in which to do it, which was to fly around the world in the 1930s, including to New Zealand, and study and compare traditional diets with modern diets. And oh my goodness, here to tell us about the results and what it means is the very gorgeous Sally, who's especially famous to us in New Zealand because her husband, Jeffrey, is a Kiwi. Sally, good morning. Thank you, Rodney. It is it, lovely to be with you. It's just lovely to see you again. Oh, well, look, listeners don't have the video that I have, and to see you beaming so radiantly, it bringing tears to my eyes because <laughs> truly um, – my wife was a professional athlete and she suffered horrific chronic fatigue. Um, uh, my health wasn't good. And we met you. We studied Dr. Weston A. Price. We have nourishing traditions as our cookbook. And our three kids were born and grew up incredibly healthy because when our kids were young, or before they were born, we decided to put a big effort and to what you should feed them. Right, right. Actually, one of the things Dr. Price found in these healthy traditional cultures, including the Maori, <clears throat> was that they had special feeding before conception, during pregnancy, during yes. lactation, and the period of growth. And these foods were very nutrient-dense foods. They included things like fish eggs, Always liver was one of the foods. Um, butter from grass-fed cows. Of course, that wasn't among the traditional Maoris, but that was in Europe. Um, shellfish was another one. Organ meats. Uh, blood was a very important food in many of these cultures. And we know that blood is extremely nutrient-dense. Uh, animal fats. So butter, uh, lard, um, drippings. <laughs> Poultry fats. I think of the special bird they had in um, the, what was it called? The bird with had so much fat. Oh, mutton bird. The, the mutton bird. bird. <laughs> mutton bird. Yes. Um, so it is 
the exact, uh, and, and this prepared them for pregnancy. It built up the mother's nutritional stores before she conceived and then provided the optimal nutritional uh, milieu for the growing fetus and then for the child. And what did Dr. Price find? These people were, first of all, extremely handsome. They had broad faces. The bones were very strong in the face and they had plenty of room for the teeth. So all of them were, had straight teeth. So you can imagine coming from a, you know, American culture where people had terrible teeth and coming into a culture where everyone has these beautiful, sparkling, broad teeth. And this was striking. He found it everywhere he went up on the traditional diets. Because logically, it doesn't make sense that God or nature or both would make a human being with crooked teeth or <laughs> teeth that didn't work, you know, and you don't see animals having problems with their teeth. That's right. That's right. And unless, unless they're pets, sometimes they do have. Yeah, yeah. And, and we've all seen those pictures of happy African children. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. On the yes. news or in National Geographic, and of course, National Geographic is especially important to the story, and these beautiful, white, gleaming teeth and a full mouth of teeth, no no crookedness or buckledness. No, all the wisdom teeth, everything. Yeah, and, and, and of course it was the buckling of the jaw mm -hmm. was uh, as the first sign of poor nutrition, right, Absolutely. and not having enough room for your teeth. For the teeth, exactly, and it showed up in one generation. It's not genetic it's nutritional and of course when the face is broad and the teeth are naturally straight it's a sign that the whole body has been formed with the optimal nutrition so everything works the heart works the pancreas works mm. the bones are very strong and this posture is straight and in the head and this is very important because the face is broad there's room for the pineal gland the pituitary gland. And I especially often focus on the hypothalamus, which is right in the middle of the head. And that is the master gland. And it is also uh, the C, it is the gland that produces the cuddly hormone. Mm. Uh, I think it's called oxytocin. And then it is also the seat of impulse control. Oh, and that's we, interesting. Yes. And so you think of these traditional cultures, they were stoic, you know, they had good impulse control. Um, but what we see in our young people today is lack of impulse control. They can't sit still, they can't concentrate. And very often they end up on drugs, addicted, and so forth. And a lot of this comes from the prenatal nutrition. Well, my poor wife uh, was a professional athlete and she followed religiously her training regime and what mm -hmm. she needed to be to be the best in the world and of course she had a nutritionist right? <laughs> yes <laughs> and they were following science and government advice and when you look at what she was eating sally it was, it was horrific you know like one egg a week you know, eggs, eggs yeah. were going were killers. And 
absolutely uh, no fat. Fat, yeah. And and she became so run down. Yeah. And then then she got sick, and of course no fermented food. So her microbiome and her gut was completely washed out. And we got on the Western A Price diet and we had some uh, a holistic medical help, which diagnosed the problem with her gut. Honest to God, she just bounced back and has never looked back and then went on to have three beautiful, healthy children. God knows what it would have been like if she'd had children without uh, proper nutrition. She probably would not have gotten pregnant. Wow. There was a study. There was a study in at Harvard a few years ago where they looked at women who were having trouble getting pregnant, and like they were all dutifully consuming low-fat dairy products. So they put them on high half the group on high-fat dairy products, and those were the ones who were able to get pregnant. And this was very embarrassing for them because this is Harvard University. They've been pushing the low fat for all these years, but they could only get pregnant when they went on the high fat dairy products. So they said, well, if you can't get pregnant, get on the high fat dairy until you get pregnant and then you can go back to your low fat. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so don't you think that the diet that gets you pregnant is the diet you need to eat while you're pregnant? And but one thing I want sorry. one thing. Go ahead. Now you got one thing. I want one thing I wanted to say. We've all had a big wake up call in the last few years, mm -hmm. and we've all seen that the things that the government recommends, like COVID vaccines, mm -hmm. are killing us. Mm -hmm. And this is a long term policy to impose colonialism on mm -hmm. the world. And it started a long time ago with the USDA dietary guidelines. Mm -hmm. And these guidelines were totally against animal fats. You use uh, industrial seed oils instead, very high fiber, which is very hard to digest. So low fat, high fiber, uh, few animal foods, and no salt or low salt. And this is a death diet. It doesn't happen overnight, but it happens over a generation or two. It leads to complete infertility. It leads to a lowering of the IQ because we need our brains need salt. And it also leads to um, sexual uh, dimorphism because our bodies need animal fats to produce hormones. You know that um, testosterone and estrogen are made out of cholesterol. And mm -hmm. if you're on a low cholesterol diet, it's hard to make those things. So the dietary guidelines are the death guidelines. And it is very hard for people to realize this. You know, I'm out there saying you need fat, you need to eat butter, you need to cook in lard, you need, you know, no, no uh, oils. And it is so hard for people to to get over the years of indoctrination well, about how we should eat. What we've learned, particularly seen so graphically, especially here in New Zealand la the last three years, is how propaganda works over and over and over. And it's very easy to su suspend common sense. 
And it's very easy to go along with the official story because this is what government says. And when you look at how we industrialized our food production, um, it's truly shocking. And of course, now we have exactly what Dr. Price and his, I always mentioned his wife because she was so lovely. <laughs> Dr. Price and his wife observed was these diseases of modern civilization, yes. Yes. which you now know because once you see it, you can't unsee it. Yeah. And you're walking around the world looking at these particularly children that are suffering from living a modern lifestyle and moving away in the interests of big pharma, big ag, and government experts who are funded um, by these industries yeah. to, as you say, a diet that is a death diet. It absolutely is. Now tell and me, sorry. I just want to say, you know, New Zealand has one of the best traditional diets of the world. Mm. You have beautiful shellfish. You have this gorgeous New Zealand butter. You ate organ meats. You had when you, you know, when my husband killed a lamb the first night, you had lamb fry. You ate the yeah. liver and the kidneys. Uh, you you can still get raw milk in New Zealand, and I think yes. uh, you should. You've got beautiful pasture. Uh, you have everything you need to be healthy in New Zealand. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned raw milk. Well, it's not funny. It's a tragedy we used to get for many, many years. We got the most beautiful raw milk. Uh, and when we say raw milk, uh, listeners, it's milk straight from the cow. It's not pasteurized, which actually takes the good bugs out of the milk. And you're going to hear on my show, whenever we talk food, the importance of good bugs, because that's what changed my wife's life. Good bugs and not homogenized, not all chopped up. And I remember I hadn't drunk milk since I was a, almost a boy. And I got this first glass of raw milk and I drank it and it was like going back to my childhood. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness, the taste of that raw milk yeah. was so delicious. And I went to bed that night and I slept like a baby and woke up refreshed. My dear mother was beside herself because from the moment or my babies, when they were being weaned, they had raw milk. And my mother said, you're going to kill them <laughs> because <laughs> she had been absolutely propagandized by uh, yes, Funkett yes. Society that to give your kids, we had cows growing up, but you weren't to give your kids that milk. And my kids, they still get up in the morning and have raw milk and kefir, but the the family, the, this beautiful couple that grew this raw, delicious milk, scrupulous. I used to visit their farm. They were always being hounded yes. by the authorities. They brought out new legislation from Parliament 
They had lawyers involved to comply. They had legal advice that how they were doing it to supply raw milk to willing consumers, and they were prosecuted and convicted. Yeah. And destroyed. We felt very badly about that. Now, uh, there still is some raw milk in New Zealand, yes. but of course, it's very difficult to comply. The standards are extremely strict. Now, Sally, I'd like to take you right back to the beginning, and I'd like you to tell us about Dr. Weston A. Price. Well, he was a dentist. He was had a practice in Cleveland, Ohio. And he was a man who asked probing questions. And the question he kept asking is, why are my patients so sick? Why do every mouth I open has decay and uh, infection uh, and they have crowded and crooked teeth? And you mentioned National Geographic because he had a nephew who worked for the National Geographic. And all these uh, explorers and anthropologists were going out to uh, remote regions. And the report always came back what beautiful teeth they had. And the photographs. Yeah, well, those were taken by, yeah, there were some photographs, early, early photographs. But Dr. Price decided to see for himself. So for 10 years, every summer, he went to a remote part of the globe, took his camera, and he... Uh, the first thing he would do when, for example, the first place he went was a Swiss village. He um, uh, got the permission of the elders and lined everybody up and counted cavities. So that part of his research was very precise, scientific. It was published in peer-reviewed uh, dental journals. But he also described their overall state of health, the, the foods that they ate, and he took samples of the foods back to his laboratory in Cleveland, Ohio, and analyzed them for vitamins and minerals. And the, the bottom line of all this is these healthy diets were extremely rich in vitamins and minerals. They were very high in minerals, four times higher in, or even more than the American diet of his day. But they were really high in the fat-soluble vitamins. And these are vitamins A, D, and K, which we don't get from many places in our food. We get them from fats, animal fats. We get them from organ meats. Uh, we get them from um, uh, certain types of seafood, shellfish, uh, fish eggs. And these were, of course, the foods that these people uh, emphasized in their diets. And this was in the 1930s? Yes, he started in 1931. Uh, went to about 1941, and the book came out in 1945. And what I found, it's a beautiful book to read. Yes, the photographs are just unforgettable. Mm. A, a picture tells a thousand words. Mm. And when you see the comparison of the healthy traditional people with people of the same race, same genetics, just one generation later after the processed food came in. Mm. Or in the case of those um, islands off Scotland, the the Western Isles, yes. the difference literally between one village where the trading ships came and a village 10 kilometers or 10 miles away, night and day. Yes, yes. 
and then he could when he went to switzerland he's high up in this valley that no one could get to it was like a two-day hike and he just was at a period in history where you could fly around the world just starting roads were going in and yet there was still these isolated yes people living as they had done for literally thousands of years. Yeah. And it, he, another couple of years, like the first place he went, Switzerland, the Swiss village, he, there was no roads to the village. You had to walk, as you say. Mm. Um, two years later, that was gone. Mm. And as soon as the roads came into these Swiss villages, stores came in. See, they didn't have stores before. They no. produced all their own food. But the stores came in full of what he was he called the displacing foods of modern commerce, foods based on sugar, white flour, chocolate came in, canned condensed milk. They were no longer drinking raw milk. And then what I call the worst of them all, the industrial seed oils. Mm. So that's what was killing people then and is killing people today. And one of the wonderful things he did was he came to New Zealand and ahead of coming here, he wrote to Sir Aparananata, who is a iconic Maori leader at the time, Maori MP, Maori lawyer, wonderful, wonderful man, and uh, sought his advice. And he and his wife traveled up the east coast of the North Island and met Maori living traditionally. And he reported the healthiest people he'd ever seen. Yes, yes, yes. And we see Maori, when you look back to reports in history of not long after the Europeans arrived, their health destroyed. Yes, yes. It was such and, a temptation, yeah. And they'd never tasted sugar before. Never, or alcohol, sugar, alcohol. Or tea, coffee, you know, all of these uh, yeah. curses. Curses. And um, it is so stark. And yet, here's the thing, Sally. It's impossible to read this book and not have your life shattered. Well, we hope so. <laughs> Mm. But <laughs> we hope your life gets shattered. It is shattering, and you and it's inarguable because yes. it's there. It's and not a theory. I, yeah, it's there, <laughs> and you know, to change, you do need to break things. Mm. But and, what happened when he came back? How come this didn't revolutionize American diet? Well, at first, it was widely accepted. His book was used in anthropology classes at Harvard University, if you can imagine that. Wow, I did not know that. Yes. So he had a few years of acceptance, but of course, the powers that be didn't they don't want us to be healthy. There's no money in healthy people. And there's no money in the kind of foods that you need to eat to be healthy. No. So uh, one of the first things that happened is he was asked to endorse um, Wonder Bread. And Wonder Bread is this white, fluffy bread. They add vitamins too, and that's going to be good for you. And he, Dr. Price, refused. And the other thing was the he, he was head of research for the National um, Dental Association, and they asked them to endorse fluoride. 
And he said, well, these healthy people didn't take fluoride and they had no cavities. So you know what happened? Overnight, they set up a new uh, society, the American Dental Association. They did endorse fluoride and also amalgams. And 95% of all the dentists switched from Dr. Price's organization to the new one. So he, he, you know, he was not going to bow down to the powers that be. And um, he died really kind of a lonely, broken man, I think, um, not not knowing what would happen with his research. And of course, he had great success, as I understand it. Please correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. because I'm relying on what I read 10 years ago. Actually, no, no, no. Um, Longer. Mm -hmm. But he found that he could literally, with children, repair cavities. Yes, yes, he could. By giving them nutrient-rich fish oil and uh, a treatment. Cod liver oil. Cod liver oil. It was two uh, things. It was yes. uh, cod liver oil, what he called it, high vitamin cod liver oil, and what he called high vitamin butter oil, yes, that's right. which was a butter that he centrifuged and got an oil from. And he gave those two things together. And that was like a miraculous cure for uh, bone problems, tooth decay, depression. And we now know the reason in the cod liver oil, you have vitamins A and D. But there was this third vitamin, which he called the X factor. We now know that's vitamin K2. And these three vitamins work together in, in a powerful way. So uh, we do recommend that people take a natural cod liver oil. Please only use our recommended brands because most of the commercial brands are have been heated several times. So natural cod liver oil and then Sources of vitamin K, that would be butter, egg yolks, poultry fat, uh, cheese, uh, the, uh, those kind of foods. So that's that, that's the land and sea, so, so to speak. Yes. You want and that of balance. Course, and, of course, the dentists were horrified because their business was drilling teeth. Yeah, exactly. You mean you want to actually show them how to cure cavities? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, um, and here, well, I'm going to come to that. How did you come across Western A Price, Sally? I've never known the answer to that. Yeah. So um, I discovered his book in about 1974. My... Um, and it resonated with me for the reason that I came from a family of foodies. We all like to cook. We loved French cuisine. So we ate butter and cream and eggs and liver and all these things already. And the book, uh, oh, I thought I'm doing things right. I'm doing things right. And I had already had one child who was very healthy and beautiful little girl. And I, my, I, my diet then actually improved because I put more emphasis on these things. And I had three more boys and none of my children needed braces. They all had straight teeth. And I came from a family where we all needed braces. 
In fact, my dad used to sit at the table and say, I don't understand that your mom and I have naturally straight teeth and perfect eyesight. How come all you kids need braces and glasses? So, so um, even though we had a pretty good diet, it wasn't enough to um, maintain the optimal expression of the genetic potential. But you can turn it around, which I was able to so, do. So you came, across, you came across this book, right? Yeah. What, you fell over it in the library? No, no, I had bought it and brought it home and read it. Wow. So, um, and, and you didn't know anyone else into Western A. Price then? Well, there was the Price Pottinger Nutrition Foundation. I okay. became a member. Okay. Uh, but after my, when my youngest was five, <clears throat> I suddenly got this idea. I had more time because he was in school now. I suddenly got the idea to do a cookbook that would put Dr. Price's work into practical form for people. Beautiful book. And uh, the idea took hold of me. I kept trying to dismiss it. Oh, this is crazy. We don't need another cookbook. <clears throat> but it just became an obsession. So I started working on the cookbook. <laughs> and this book, uh, listeners, is a beautiful book called Nourishing Traditions. I have since finding out about Western A. Price become a cook, and I have two cookbooks, uh, Nourishing Traditions and Julia Child's cookbook. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. And it's all I need, but I dismiss some of her um, hand-waving to the modern um, shillabaliths at the time that she felt she had to deviate from traditional um, French cooking and um, uh, so I, I dismiss that they are all the cookbooks I have because there's a funny story I read that something about uh, that it'd be a same for New Zealand the average American has um, 30 cookbooks or something and yeah. um, cook at home 30 times a year or something right. they're more cookbooks than they cook at home and of course, right. our mothers, our mothers might have had an Edmunds cookbook for baking, and that was it. But they learned to cook as young girls. Yeah. Um, now, you then set up the Western A. Price Foundation. Is, have I got the name correct? The Western A. Price Foundation. We felt we needed an organization that was more turned towards the public. Uh, hardly anyone knew about Dr. Price. So we um, uh, we try to make his message available in as many forms as possible. So we have a journal. We have these little flyers, which are kind of sound bites. We have a podcast that's very popular. We have local chapters who have meetings. But the whole idea, I, I feel like we're in the 11th hour, Rodney. Uh, we don't have much time left to turn this around and we just need to get this message out to as many people as will hear it. Not everybody yeah. will hear it or listen to it or change because of it. But You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. You have one of my favorite human beings, a human being that has helped me more than probably any other single human being. Um, it's Sally Falloon Morrell <laughs> and she heads up started and heads up the Western A. Price Foundation, who was just this wonderful, wonderful researcher. And the research 
and our traditions and the way we used to live and should live have been overwhelmed by big tech, big pharma, big ag, and government experts who, I believe, to put it politely, have been in the pay and service of these big industries. And, of course, more and more New Zealanders, Sally, have become awake to the misinformation, to coin a modern phrase, of governments and so-called health experts through this whole horrific COVID era. And, of course, once you see it, Again, it's like Western A Price. You can't unsee it. And it's a horrifying, it's a horrifying thought. And I, I feel for my former friends. <laughs> and I say former <laughs> friends genuinely because, you know, my family were outcasts, like many of our listeners. We were outcasts from New Zealand because we wouldn't take the jab. We didn't believe that the virus would kill us. We didn't trust um, the experts. We couldn't understand how this jab could be safe and effective or that they could know. And we couldn't understand this overwhelming necessity to jab our kids. And yet the government every day, over and over and over and over, and then the mandates. If your kids were over 12, Thank God mine were under 12. They couldn't do sport, couldn't go in school camps, were um, reviled. They had to give up that information in class, whether they were vaccinated, even when they're under 12. And of course, if you didn't get a jab, you lost your job. Now, once you question that, And you saw that there was no ability to ask the question or to debate it. You saw something terrible, something wrong in the governments around the world. And we were fortunate because we had been exposed to the Western A. Price Foundation. And so we had seen it with the dietary guidelines. We had seen it with this vaccine madness for our kids where they were giving vaccine after vaccine after vaccine. We had seen it. And so it wasn't such a shock. But now so many people have been shocked into this. But none of this would have surprised you. No, no. Uh, well, you're uh, you're sort of taken aback at the effrontery of these people. Yes. How they can get away with giving out this misinformation. And and of course, most of the people doing it really believe it. They really Mm. believe it. So, but as I say, um, one of the most important things to realize is the campaign against animal fats is wrong. And I always say the first thing to do to improve your health is to get your fats right. Mm. Go back to using beautiful butter and 
cooking with uh, pig fat and drippings, um, bird, don't no skinless chicken breasts. You know, you want the fat of the birds. Mm. It's good mm. nutrition there. Well, and what you'll find is that your food is so much more satisfying and fun to eat. Yes. And you, I'm not the best example of portion control, Sally, but you do find a satiation because yes. if you're on a modern diet, you're forever hungry yep. because your body is calling out for nutrition. It's screaming yeah. for it. It is and, screaming for nourishment, yes. And again, here's another great observation, is that there never used to be fat kids. There's some great old films of New York in 1911. Yeah. Nobody's fat. Nobody's Everybody's fat. Slim. And they're, they all eat butter and they all, the food's fried in lard. And um, yeah. And no one's fat. And now yeah. no one's slim. Yeah. And, and, of course, the fascinating thing about that is it wasn't that they were poor. No, was, oh, no. Yeah, they, like, they, they, they could afford to eat. Uh, Americans they, ate tons of meat. We, yes. we ate meat with every meal, yes. sausage and bacon and eggs and cheese. We, it was a very high animal food diet. Yes, and they have this wonderful health. And, I mean, I'm 66 to give it away. And when I was growing up, there might be one or two overweight kids in the school. Mm -hmm. And now at a school, um, particularly, may I say, um, in poorer areas and in Maori and Pacific Island communities that are more recent generationally speaking, converts to the modern diet, obesity is the rule. And these kids are starving. They're starving, but they're obese, yes. Now, one of the things that Weston A. Price Foundation has talked about a lot are the additives, MSG, Mm -hmm. which is in all processed food. Now, the industry says there's nothing wrong with MSG. It's been completely vindicated, but this is not true. Uh, The there is a wonderful study showing that people who in China who use more MSG in their cooking end up fat, whereas those who don't use it end up slim. The other thing about MSG is it affects the hypothalamus. We're back to this hypothalamus again. Mm. The master gland, the seat of impulse control, uh, the seat of the uh, cuddling hormone, um, it just messes up your brain and your thinking. And that's in all processed food. Mm. Of course, the other wonderful thing, and we'll come back to the Western A Prize Foundation and resources in a second, but the one, the other wonderful thing about Western A Price Foundation, Western A Price, Western A Price Foundation, traditional food, is it becomes a lifestyle. So it's not yes. just about what you eat, it's how you eat. And we have become, we eat now like our great-grandparents ate. So eating is a big deal. Yeah. You know, you because at the we, table, we cook, you eat yes. Together. You don't eat between meals. No. And there's a discipline to sitting down together. You learn the art of conversation. Yes. You can't interrupt. You, uh, you know, you, you learn um, 
to be make pleasant, interesting conversation. Mm -hmm. And all of these skills are being lost because of the chaotic way that people eat today. Mm. And um, and then you get the delicious. Gosh, when I started cooking, Sally, I couldn't cook. I didn't know how to boil an egg, you know. And my wife always complains when I mention that, that nor could she. So I, one of us had to start learning. And I find nothing more satisfying than cooking for yeah. my children. Yeah. And I find nothing more satisfying than having them all sitting up at the table waiting for dinner and not eating before dinner and then putting out a dish wouldn't compare to the dishes you can make, but oh, it's still pretty do. good. And <laughs> I, I've got very good at baking sourdough bread uh, after, after a while and you put all this delicious food out and then you sit down and um, we give thanks Yes. And we enjoy, as you say, a very nutritious meal. And how was your day? What happened yeah. at school? Yeah. Yes. Right. And that doesn't happen now. I'm afraid very little. I think the people who get into our lifestyle are doing this, having meals cooking for their children. And I love what you say. There's nothing more satisfying in life than preparing nutritious food nothing. for your children and seeing them sit down and enjoy it. I have to tell listeners that um, we got, uh, with Sally's help and advice, one of the things that we did um, before we had children, because we had to get my wife's health back and we got it back. And it was entirely through good nutrition and exactly what Sally said about, you know, extra emphasis um, to get her, back, her health back. And then we learned to maintain it. And when I had little babies, we started weaning them and we'd get the raw milk and we'd make this fermented uh, kefir. And Sally advised in her book, I used to take um, kefir. I'd put a raw egg in it. I'd put salt in it. I'd put a bone broth in it, a big slug of bone broth, which is just boiled bones. I used to put a little chunk of raw liver in it. And I used to put a banana, and I still do. I put a banana in it, and I'd whiz it up. My poor mother would have a fit saying, you can't feed that to kids. Because, you know, even her, you know, she grew up in an era where they'd introduced food for babies in a can. I know. I know. <laughs> and I'd give this to my kids. Do you know, they're 12 years old, and every morning, they have that drink. And even, what, uh, you've, you've done more. I don't think I could get my kids to, to drink. Well, one, ha, one has stopped. I, I gave I gave one. a um, My bone broth had got a little old, I think, 
and it had a bit of a smell, you know, a bit of a whiff, and she's very sensitive, and she says, that's it. But she still has the kefir. But yeah. um, they, if we go away for a day, like stay at someone's house or, or, or go camping, they get a bit upset because they're not having this um, start to their day. And I, I always think of like Rocky getting up when he's training and having those raw eggs. But it is so amazing to watch. And we've decided not to deny them food, but we've explained it to them. And they love sweets. Man, oh, man. They they die for sweets, kids. When they have sweets, because they don't normally eat sugar, they go off their heads. They become, when they were little, they would become uncontrollable. And then they can't stop eating. They become irritable for 24 hours or 48 hours. You've got a nightmare on your hands. And so I've explained to them how sugar is poison. right? <laughs> and so they don't take sweets now. And I used to take them occasionally to McDonald's. And we'd sit there. And this was very special, all the color. And you eat out and you get a little have meal. They've gone off that now. Yeah. I think when you're eating real food, good food, your cravings go away and you actually don't like the taste of processed food. Mm, now, That's food. now we get, there'll be people listening. You're on Real Talk Radio with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to uh, Sally Falloon Morrell, the head honcho and foundation of the great Western A. Price Foundation. Now, how do we get the resources? How do okay. we get the books? Okay. So the website is westonaprice.org. And if you are new to the website, over on the right-hand nav bar is take a tour. and Take a tour of the website. Uh, we have memberships, and we have quite a few members in New Zealand, and okay. we have some local chapters in New Zealand. So New Zealand's a big, active country for us. We have a podcast. I should say, I should say, interrupting that the Western A Prize Foundation was well represented in the River of Filth at our parliamentary protest. So oh, that oh, was good. wonderful to meet up with foundation members and people that I'd met years and years ago. Okay. And you have a podcast, yes? We have a podcast. Uh, we have, if you become a member, you get all these neat little um, trifolds, which kind of put our information in bite-sized pieces. Then uh, my books, uh, my main book is Nourishing Traditions. I have a website, newtrendspublishing.com. But I think, do you have a New Zealand Amazon? Yeah. <laughs> yes, we do. them all on Amazon. And I have a website, and it's called nourishingtraditions.com, where I hold forth on all sorts of subjects. Uh, anyway, you can have a look at nourishingtraditions.com. And you have the wonderful book I've just remembered for babies. Yes, I have the Nourishing Traditions book of baby and child care. That's right. That is so yeah. wonderful. And your research expert, sadly passed, who co-wrote, or you put her name on, I don't know how it works. What's this? Mary Innig. Oh, Mary is no longer with us. Yes. Um, but what a wonderful woman. Yes, yes. And she held her grounds against the industrial seed oils. 
And for that, she never got any research contracts in her life. Brilliant researcher. And so they do ostracize people who go against the stream. So I well, think it's, it's a it's, of honor. Yeah. It brings it all back to me. That's why I can't stop talking. But it's just amazing, isn't it, that um, a rubbish food like cornflakes or wheat bicks, I don't know what you have, all these breakfast cereals that come in a box and that's healthy food and eggs and bacon with a bit of lamb not. Fry, yeah. and sourdough toast is will kill you. How do you achieve that? That is that is weapons grade propaganda. Oh, absolutely, Rodney. Um, <laughs> by the way, I just wrote a an article. Let's see, it's called "The War on Good Breakfast," uh, which is uh, at my blog, nourishingtraditions.com. Mm, wonderful. Now uh, I'm going to. Uh, it's so it's so wonderful to talk to you, <laughs> New Zealanders. You're listening. Trust me. No matter how old you are. No matter how late in your life it is, no matter how you feel, nothing improves you better if you've been on bad food to eat a Dr. Weston A. Price, a nourishing traditions diet. Please try it. It'll change your life. Literally, a glass of milk just Bull gave me milk. a yeah, raw milk, just yeah. gave me not only a satisfying drink but a night's sleep and i woke up calm yeah. Yeah. yeah our body our body's screaming out for us you've been you we've had the wonderful have you got one last thing to say to kiwis sally <laughs> uh just go back to your traditional diet you have the best butter in the world in best butter New Zealand. in the world best we go we go through yeah. gallons of it yes, i remember you when you i remember when you came to new zealand and people being horrified that you would put butter, I think, in your coffee or your tea. I can't remember. No, no, I don't drink coffee and tea. But um, uh, what was it you did with your butter? You took it like in big I put gulps. It on everything. I put it on everything. <laughs> <laughs> and my teeth wife. Marks, teeth marks in the butter. That's right. That's right. And, and my wife, I mean, she was a professional athlete training four or five hours a day. And when she started to take a lot of butter, she she lost weight, you know, like yeah. in a good way. Yes, yes. It's it's the most astonishing thing. She said, oh, God, I mean, I don't know whether this is good for me, but eating butter and bacon yeah. <laughs> and eggs, that's a good way to live. And then blow me down. Oh, my goodness. Sally, you are a wonderful gift. What's your message to Kiwis? Uh, well, go back to your traditional diets and you'll be, you and your children will be so much better for it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your life's work. You, uh, you must get so many great emails and stories <laughs> of, of wonderful. And I, I look at my three kids and, um, so healthy and oh, that's great. I have no doubt. It's because of you promoting Western A Price. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, Rodney. Lovely to talk to you. And hello to all you Kiwis there. We we think of you often. What's yes. going well, on? We're, 
We've been to hell and back these past few years, but it's made us stronger. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rodney. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. The very great author and filmmaker, Michael Crichton, gave a speech 20 years ago in September. September the 15th in 2003 to the Commonwealth Club, and he the speech was titled Environmentalism is a Religion. And I want to read it to you because I think it's absolutely correct in its assessment. And I'm quoting his speech. Environmentalism seems to be the religion of choice for urban atheists. Why do I say it's a religion? Well, just look at the beliefs. If you look carefully, you see that environmentalism is in fact a perfect 21st century remapping of traditional Judeo-Christian beliefs and myths. There's an initial Eden, a paradise, a state of grace and unity with nature. There's a fall from grace into a state of pollution as a result of eating from the tree of knowledge. And as a result of our actions, there is a judgment day coming for us all. We are all energy sinners, doomed to die, unless we seek salvation, which is now called sustainability. Sustainability is salvation in the church of the environment, just as organic food is its communion, that pesticide-free wafer that the right people with the right beliefs imbibe. Eden, the fall of man, the loss of grace, the coming doomsday, these are deeply held mythic structures. They are profoundly conservative beliefs. They may be even hardwired in the brain, for all I know. I certainly don't want to talk anybody out of them, as I don't want to talk anybody out of a belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who rose from the dead. But the reason I don't want to talk anybody out of these beliefs is that I know that I can't talk anybody out of them. These are not facts that can be argued. These are issues of faith. And so it is, sadly, with environmentalism. Increasingly, it seems, facts aren't necessary because the tenets of environmentalism are all about belief. It's about whether you're going to be a sinner or saved, whether you're going to be one of the people on the side of salvation or on the side of doom, whether you're going to be the one of us or one of them. So said Michael Crichton. Man. Does that speak the truth as a correct assessment? And 20 years on, we could add to it, couldn't we? Burning people at the stake? Uh, Metaphorically now, if you speak out of turn on environmentalism, you will be uh, deplatformed and pilloried. You will be attacked by the mob. You will probably lose your job. That's if you question environmentalism. And I should say, just like Michael Crichton did, we all love nature. We all think we should care for nature. We all think we should do a better job. That's not what we're talking about here. It's the loony bin environmentalism that we're talking about. And we could add to it, not just do we burn heretics at the stake, we've had our prophet. A young girl appeared in Sweden, sitting alone outside the parliament, 
not going to school because we're all doomed unless we seek salvation and sustainability. Greta Thunberg was this young girl, and she spoke a wisdom and a truth beyond her years. And world leaders bowed down to this young prophet as she spoke her truth, and she abnormed, I can't say it, she told them off. She put them all in the naughty corner. Prime ministers, presidents, heads of states, heads of religion, big company CEOs, she scolded them, this young girl, Greta Thunberg, like the prophetess that she was. And she was a great choice, actually, because you couldn't criticise her because she's just a young girl. She's a bit autistic, but special needs, can't criticise her, can't make fun of her. She's a prophet, don't you know? Dropped out of school to save the world. Salvation. And when you take that religion analogy, you see it sort of everywhere. Like Chris Luxon says, oh, I believe in climate change. He doesn't say it's true, just that he believes in it. You can't have a debate with someone about transgenderism and about the whether you can a boy can become a girl or a girl can become a boy. You can't debate that. They believe it. It's an article of faith. And so too with COVID and the benefits of the lockdowns and the vaccines. We were all about the numbers and the facts. But no, it was like a cult or a religion. Everywhere you look, it seems that we have lost our ability to think critically, to debate, to speak clearly, to listen, actually to listen, to listen. And that's why I love having Reality Check Radio, because we can learn to listen, we can learn to critique, we can learn to debate, we can do all these things, and we can laugh and have fun. And we can present facts and arguments that we are right, but that we can engage in the debate. Increasingly, that conversation can't take place. Increasingly, we can't have that debate. Well, that's the gap that Reality Check Radio is filling. And my goodness, how much are people enjoying it? Please, text us, email us, let us know. Thank you for listening. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. 
they can't work, they're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio. How great was that? Robe Edge, Sally Falloon Morale. We had everything this morning, didn't we, with those two lovely ladies. You were on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've had some real talk. We'll talk about sex, gender, and how you can, as of June the 15th, oh, hold back three more days, and you'll be able to change your birth certificate. More particularly, men who are exhibitionists, which is to say flashes and peeping toms, will be legalized. That is to say, they can just get their birth certificate changed and wander in to the changing rooms of girls and women and sit there and expose themselves and peep because legally they're women. How do we know they're women? Because they ID'd themselves as women. It's on their birth certificate. And that madness was voted for by 120 MPs. I'm picking on all of them. What level of insanity was that? Oh, and how brave is Roe Edge to be standing up to it? And then we had the beautiful and wonderful Sally Falloon Morale and traditional diets and how it is when you see pictures of Indigenous peoples before food came in a box and how beautiful they looked and how wonderfully white and straight their teeth were. Well, the man and his wife that studied that was Dr. Weston A. Price, and he produced a book, 10 Years of Study, wonderful, wonderful book, Human Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. It's a life changer. Get that book, read it, and get Sally Falloon's cookbook, Nourishing Traditions. It's a great cookbook, but it's a wonderful, wonderful read on the history of food and the history of cooking. You'll enjoy it. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. I'd love to hear from you. Text me 2057. Send me an email, inbox at realitycheck.radio. Thank you for listening. It's so wonderful to be a part of your day. Thank you. <laughs>